are listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. All right, you may be seated, everyone. Great singing. This is amazing worship. It is so good to be back. Kids, you are free to go back there. Mr. Ben is ready to take you to your kids' church. And I have to say, watching the live stream the last couple weeks uh, with my family since we've been, we've been sick has, has been great. We're really thankful for that ministry. But nothing compares to being in the same room, hearing your voices, praying with you ahead of time, and being here as a church. So it is definitely a thrill to be back with the church family. And take your Bible. Turn back with me to the book of James. We're in James chapter 4 today. Um, you know, I have to say this too. It is such a blessing to have men like Ben, Brother Steve. Uh, you know something special about our church. We have men like that who on short-term notice step in and preach God's word faithfully. It is so effective and I'm very, very grateful for them. Uh, but today we're back in our regular series. Faith does. This is a series for the book of James, and it's about how you can live a genuine Christian life. What does a real Christian look like? What does a real Christian sound like? James has been getting very, very personal with us in this series. And if you remember back to three weeks ago, when I was last here, in James chapter 3, he was contrasting, this is where we left off, he was contrasting worldly false wisdom versus the wisdom that is from above, true wisdom. We were seeing a contrast between these two, two uh, schools of thought, ways to live. And it was a little ironic that I thought, you know, just a couple days after I preached that sermon, we had the first presidential debate. And, and James, when everything that James had just said was kind of like on display in a way, in some, in some shape or fashion there. And, and we, can't, we can't argue that our world is lacking what wisdom James is talking about in the church. Why do so many of our leaders struggle with boasting? Why do so many of our leaders struggle with being false to the truth? In the context today, James just got done telling us why. I'll remind you, James chapter 3, verse 14. It's because of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Those are the underlying motives that a lot of people have. So as we step back into James in this morning's message, it's very much part two of that same context, the same points that James has been making. As a matter of fact, today James is going to go one step deeper, and he's continuing his train of thought, and by the end, the wordsmith himself, James, the man who I've already compared to the Riddler and I've compared him to Christopher Nolan, he likes to make the long argument, okay? He likes to use sarcasm. He likes to make his point. He is going to reveal to us the underlying motive that is at the heart of getting this all right. A motive is a reason for doing something, especially one that is hidden or not obvious. And I'm calling this message the underlying motive because there's three big concepts, three crucial words that are the recipe for getting away from the worldly wisdom to producing a harvest of peace by those who make peace. And James is going to tell us how to do this. 
but there are some layers here. And in addition to the, the layers of what we're going to see, the New Testament often talks about the fact that we're in a battle. We have enemies. And throughout the New Testament, you'll see that. The three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. So I want to cue you off and tip you off. Like, look for those three enemies in the text today. And also, at the same time, there's going to be three big concepts, three big words that are going to play as our three main points. And there is an underlying key component that ties all three of those points together. All right? So you ready for this? Uh, what your appetite? Do you not want to be like one of the debaters or like a debate between a moderator, like just worldly wisdom that's all about self and portraying your agenda and getting ugly? We don't want to be that way, right? We don't. Okay, good. Let's go to the text and read James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrel and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. You do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has, that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So James begins with this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? First of all, we have to take note, he's talking to Christians right now, remember? This is a whole book. We're talking to Christians about how we should actually genuinely live in a Christian life. So he's assuming that we're going to have some fights and quarrels. And it's already stinging a little bit, but he's just telling it like it is. This is, this is the truth. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Now, if you didn't have your Bible on your lap right now as the perfect cheat sheet, and I was just to ask you, what causes quarrels and fights among you? not sitting in church on Sunday, what would be normally said? Well, it's, it's Johnny. He's such a moron. <laughs> or it's corporate. You know, they have no idea what I have to deal with in my job. You, you could go on and on, right? The board, or the, the, the people on the board are like, well, the board above me. Like, they don't understand me. No, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Not, not what is frustrating, distracting, and hard sometimes, right? I understand those people but it takes two people to quarrel, right? So what does the second half of verse 1 actually say? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's not really what's going on around you. It's not your, your crazy sister. It's not your mother-in-law. It's, it's not the, your superior who's disconnected to reality in your mind. 
It's something going on inside of you. And this is the first big step, okay? This is the first big piece that you have to get. It's ownership. Ownership. Number one, the first point today is quench the desires of the flesh by starting with your own personal sin. Those are the first three verses. Whatever you think the problem is, probably isn't the core of the problem. Fights and quarrels, they take two people. They won't happen if you won't let them. And you have to understand, it's not out there at the core heart of the problem. It's actually in here. This is where it begins. You desire and you don't have. This is verse 2. You covet and you cannot obtain. Keep in mind, he is talking to the followers of Jesus right now. Told you he's digging deeper. He's talking about your internal motives. And uh, we just had an amazing marriage conference. Paul Tripp preached four sermons that were so spot on. It really parallels what we're going to see in the passage today. But all marriage counselors, and Paul Tripp is one of those marriage counselors, so you're just oozing out of him. They will all tell you everybody has the same problem. Every marriage is dealing with the exact same issue. How are we going to spend our money? How are we going to spend all of our free time here? Or what, you know, all of the issues are the same. The problem comes down to how you handle those issues. How are you responding and reacting in the, in the midst of those conversations? We all deal with these issues, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the issue is. It's how you treat each other in those issues that matters. The issue is not the issue. It's how you respond to the issue. And it's the same thing for parents and kids. I don't know if you can think back to when you were a child. Do you ever remember a time when you were maybe fighting with your sister and your mom or dad in an exasperated way just said, would you just get it all get along? I don't care what's going on. It doesn't matter. Well, she hit me and he hit No, no, just work it out, please. Just work it out. Right? You don't care about the issue itself. It's how you're responding and handling the issue. That is, that is the important part. And here's what James is saying. This is... This is where it starts. It starts with ownership of your own personal sin. The quarrels that are occurring have everything to do with what's inside of you. It's not circumstantial. It's an internal spiritual matter. Now let's keep going. The second half of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your you see again how the motives are all wrong? There's self-love. There's selfishness. You don't have because you don't ask. And all this manipulation, there's no prayer or supplication. And you know it's an issue when you're not praying about it. You're just fighting and clawing to get to the top. So you're not even praying, you're not talking to God, and when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. You're praying for God to advance you. The problem. I heard someone say it this way. They said, if all of your prayers were answered, think about this. If all of your prayers were answered one day, that would be amazing, right? Would it change the world or would it change your world? Home, doesn't it? What if every one of my prayers were answered? What if 
for just the people around me and everything that I can touch and feel, would that be bad? Or would the world change? This is telling us where our heart is at. It exposes the heart. The real problem for you is not external. It's not out there, okay? We all deal with the sin of the world and all this stuff. We have to start with our own selfish ambition. The battle, first of all, is with our own flesh. And we have to own that. Quench the desires of the flesh by starting with your own personal sin. Now, the second point starts in verse 4. I'll read verse 4 again. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Second big concept here is confession. Number two, confession. Don't lie with the world. Embrace God's grace. This is a direct, in-your-face statement that is calling for a response. But I want to step back for a second, first of all, and, and, and let James kind of lay out and, and see where he's coming from in this area. So all of us in this room, your life is going in, in one of two directions. Okay, There's kind of like two branches you can go, two big, big branches. First of all, you can say, people, you know, here I am, I, by the grace of God, I'm aware of the goodness of God in my life. And, and, and you're able to spot the generosity that God has given to you. You appreciate the fact that, hey, I'm healthy, I know what it's like to feel strong, I have a little bit of money in my pocket, I can go out to eat. Uh, there's a gratitude here of the graciousness of God that leads to joy, and it's amazing. This gladness fuels gratitude that just fuels joy and peace in your life. That turns into a bonfire of praise. For those of us who know by the grace of God, and, and we can spot the generosity of God in our lives, we know that God doesn't owe us help, he doesn't owe us any money. Well, I don't deserve any of that. But I realize that everything I've been blessed with is a good and perfect gift coming down from the Father of lights, like James has been saying in, in this book. And when you realize the generosity of God, you start giving generously yourself. You have this ever-expanding peace and joy and contentment uh, because your eyes are not set on what you have. It's on the goodness of God, not on what you're lacking. Which brings us to the other way people tend to grow, the other branch. And it's, I see everything in life as something I'm entitled. You feel as though, you know what, I deserve that. And you're growing that in gratitude and gladness, but in expectation. And there's contempt that comes in when you don't get your way. You think you deserve all these things, and you expect God to give you everything you want when you want it. And when that doesn't happen, which it really never does, because that's not the way life works, we get upset. We, we turn against God, contemptuous. Maybe even, first it's against the people, other people God's blessing, and then it actually comes to God himself. When you see others get blessed, you can't rejoice in that, and you have this feeling, well, I deserve that. Look, here's an important sidebar, okay? You don't want God to give you everything you deserve. You actually don't want that. The greatest celebration in the heart of man should be around the fact that God's grace gives me what I don't deserve. 
and his mercy withholds from me what I actually do deserve. Be thankful God doesn't give you what you deserve. Because in fact, this, if you think about the stunning reality of common grace, those that mock and belittle God are still blessed with his good gifts. And that's pretty astounding. What we deserve is death, separation from God, because we have gone our own way, done our own thing. But God came after us. He sent Jesus into this world to die for us. By his grace, you have been saved. That is a celebrating the gift of God. So people who hate Jesus Christ, they can still experience the good, gracious gifts of common grace. They can be married, enjoy sex, have money, eat, still eat good food, still be healthy. All those things are given to God, are given to mankind by the generosity of God. Now, back to our back to where we're at right now, James. People, even Christians, we can get this way. Where if we don't get what we want, we get entitled. You start to feel contempt. You're not blessed the way you want to be blessed, the way you think you should be blessed. And that contempt eventually moves to where it gets pointed to God because how dare God not give me what I want? And then the result next is people bail. They bail on God. And when they do that, they're showing it wasn't the Jesus they actually wanted, it was the stuff that Jesus provides that they were living for. They got exposed as one who thought they could get through God what they wanted. But here's the reality. We don't have anything that God hasn't already given us. He doesn't owe us anything. You can't barter with God. You have nothing to barter with. You were dead in your sins, and he is the one who gave you spiritual life. You're invited into the family of God. You are an heir of the kingdom, and that is the good news. So back to our two growth patterns, gratitude or entitlement. If you're growing in the entitlement branch with the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, you're looking at the things of the world, you will become unfaithful to your sustainer and your treasure. And that's what we see happening in this text. That's verse 4. You adulterous people. We can, we can look at the promises of this world, these empty, vain promises of the world, and we can say, wow, that's so good. I want that. You can, you can go after someone who isn't even your spouse because they look attractive to you. And you can get so wrapped up in your own personal beauty that you forsake all of the good things that God has for you with your family and with deep covenant relationships. That same thing goes on spiritually. So again, the surface issue isn't the problem. The issue is in the heart. It's theological. Where do you look for your fulfillment and your satisfaction? Is it from God? Or is it from the empty and vain and the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season? Because sure, that person looks great. They're enticing. They're beautiful. They make you feel good right now. But you are forgetting who you really are. Who God has called you to be. And who you have already committed to. God's plan for your life is so much better for your entirety of your days than going after those pleasures of sin. And James is using Old Testament imagery here. God compared the unfaithfulness of the Israelites in Isaiah 54. He also did this in Jeremiah 3. He compares Israel's unfaithfulness to God 
has a wife who's unfaithful to her husband. Jeremiah 3, verse 20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. Running to the world to get your desires fulfilled instead of growing in your relationship with the one who gives you life, the one who can give you peace, is the same as cheating on your marriage husband. That's the imagery that God lays down throughout the Old Testament. And James isn't backing off from that. He's doubling down on that right now. He's saying this is still a problem in the church. You say, I love God, but your actions tell a different story. And for many people, they use God to advance their own agenda. Yes, Dad? Do you like the benefits of the relationship, but underneath, you are cold and indifferent to his sacrificial love for you? Do you enjoy the benefits, but underneath the surface, you're cold and indifferent to all of his sacrificial love for you? And only you can answer that question. Look again with me at verse 5. Because this is this is really getting even better, more serious. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Do you think the Bible just says that for no reason? I love James. God is jealous for you. And some people have a hard time with this concept, okay? I actually heard an interview with Oprah Winfrey, this was some years ago, but she was telling a story how she was sitting in church in New York City. This was probably in the 80s, I'm guessing. But she heard a pastor say, you know, this verse. And she just thought, wow, God is jealous for me. That just made God feel so insignificant. Makes God feel so small. Why is God jealous? Like, that just doesn't sit right. We have to listen, we have to listen up here. There, there are two kinds of jealousy. And God's jealousy for you is not the same as our jealousy. There's bitter jealousy. It's wishing you had something that's not yours. It's resentment. You know, and this is, it's, it's not going well for me, and, and I want this. That kind of jealousy is always bad. Or it's a desire to hold on to something that is yours, which that can honestly be good or bad. But for us, jealousy is almost always wrong. We shouldn't covet and hold on to the things that God has given us it's a gift from God. It, it's, it's not ours to own. Everything we have is a gift from God. But for God, follow me here, he is the one being in all of the universe who owns it all. He, he hasn't been given anything. He is the giver of it all. So of course God can be jealous because it's his. He owns you, not because you were given to him, because he created you. So if you have the wrong view of God, then sure, it can sound a little creepy. But God is so much bigger than us. He has every right to be jealous of us because he created us for his glory. Now, I know I mentioned jealousy is almost always wrong for us, right? What's the one time jealousy would be acceptable for us? Well, ladies, it's when you're married and you've given yourself to a husband. He has given himself to you. You're in a marriage covenant. You can be jealous of your husband, right? 
if there's another lady moving in and your husband is moving out, you have every right to be jealous over your man. That's the same concept here. God is jealous for you because he is faithful to you and because he loves you. And that's a very reassuring, amazing thought. This is the kind of God jealous God, this is the kind of jealousy God has for us. He's not jealous about me, he is jealous for me. This is not weird, it's not insecure. He has every right to be jealous over you. And this is something to sing about, this is something to be in awe over. He is faithful when we are not faithful. It's amazing. So I hope you can see how there's a broken version of jealousy that we're all too familiar with, and there's a healthy, loving version of jealousy that God has for us. Now, James, right now, is calling us, in this moment in the text, he's calling us to confess. He's pushing us to confess. That's what he's doing right there. And this part is a little scary, because how do you usually feel when you are getting pressed into something? Is this just normal life, and we're getting pressed into something? I think we all, as a product of our culture, naturally, we just don't want to admit that we're wrong, right? It's hard to overcome that hurdle. Because a lot of times, in our world, when you admit that you're wrong, you live in a dog-eat-dog world. And the second you slip up, there's a whole chorus of people out there that are ready to pounce. We see this all the time. You admit fault, and basically the way people look at you is you're not worthy. You're disgraceful. You can fill in the blank with a name that ends in an itch or a foe. Like, that's the world we live in. We don't want to confess weakness or sin because I may feel like I'll get canceled. Or worse, that the church will cast me out. And I hate this this fact, but unfortunately the church even kind of put a bad precedent for the whole thing years ago when we mistreat other Christians because they don't measure up. Again, you must have the correct theology. You must have the correct view of God. Even in Jeremiah 3, the passage that no one likes to talk about because God divorces Israel for their unfaithfulness. We shouldn't be shy about that passage. Because it, too, reveals the character of God. And I want to show you this passage briefly. Jeremiah 3, verses 12 through 14. This is God speaking. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebel, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. And on it goes. And what I love about God, even though he divorced Israel for their unfaithfulness, he's working primarily through the New Testament church right now, what do we see in Revelation? One day he is going to restore that relationship and bring it all back full circle. He is not going to leave his people hanging forever. He will draw them back in. That's our God. This is the heart of our God right here. In the Bible, confession never leads to destruction. In the world, it does. Oh, I messed up. I blew it. I, all right. I, I'm, yeah, I did it. Oh, shame. That's the world, right? In the Bible, confession never leads to destruction. Confession is the key to redemption. Remember that. Write it down. 
Confession never leads to destruction. It leads to redemption. It's the way it was throughout the Old Testament, and that's exactly what we see in verse 6. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this has been a doozy of a point, too, hasn't it? <laughs> There's a lot here. But if you remember, the big concept here is confession. Confession doesn't sound glam, but it is a necessity of life. Don't lie with the world. Don't, don't embrace all of their empty, vain promises. Embrace God's grace. We are unfaithful at times, but God gives more grace. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. He has more healing than you have brokenness. He has more grace than you have insecurity. He has more love than you have hate. He wants your confession not so he can feel morally superior. That's the way the world works. God is morally superior, right? He wants your confession of sin so he can give you more grace and so that he can restore. That's our God. The remedy is not to move away from him and to continue to be unfaithful. It's to move toward him. Don't hide. Confess. Not as scary as it sounds. Not when you're talking about God. And to take it one step further, because this is what James does, it's dangerous to be proud. Very, very dangerous. Not only will he not bless the proud, what will he do? What does the text say? What does he do to the proud? Opposes the proud. When I first started speaking in front of people as a pastor, you know, this, this goes back in a few years. So, you know, I first started speaking in front of people. I was so into getting nervous, worried about how people are going to receive this. Um, and to an extent, I know we all deal with this in different ways. But I was very, very anxious. How is it going to be received? Will people listen? Will people think I'm a good speaker? It's all kind of about me, right? And I, ha I finally got to the point where I said, okay, is this about God being glorified? Or is this about me looking good? That's what it comes down to. Am I worried that God's truth won't penetrate hearts? Or am I just worried that I won't sound good? Whose glory was I worried about? Was it God's or was it mine? Anxiety comes when we have the wrong view of God and the wrong view of ourselves. If it's about your glory and your image, your platform, well, you know what? You probably have something to worry about. <laughs> we all do. If that's really what it's about. But when you confess that earthly desire before it becomes unspiritual, well, before it becomes demonic, that's when you are freed up to put him in the spotlight where he belongs. We're here for his glory. And the pressure is off. All right? I'm going to do what most glorifies God. I'm going to do what brings him the most glory in every decision that I make. And it's not about, oh, I made a mistake. I'm It's over for me. I have the humility to say, I'm sorry. Will you please help me to do better next time? And God's grace is there for God opposes the proud, but he gives more grace to the humble. Look, life is too short. The stakes are too high to make it all about you. People don't need more of you in their life. What do they need? They need more of Jesus for you. That's exactly what they need. 
things that are pulling you away from your God? And the, the answer is simple. Confess that. And this is what will happen. Right here, verse 6. Grace abounding all the more. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace abounds all the more. How does God respond to our adultery? By turning up the volume of grace to the, to the point that it drowns out our rebellion. It's blown away by God's grace. That is grace that is greater than our sin. So take ownership of, take ownership of what's in your flesh. That was the first three verses. Confess the times you split up. Uh, excuse me. Confess the times you slip up and flirt with the world. And then big concept number three is found in the last four verses. It's what our response should be to this amazing grace. Look at verse seven with me. Let's read the last four verses. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, Third big idea is submission. Resist the devil and draw near to God. You see how we had the world, the flesh, and the devil in this, embedded into this? And you see these three big ideas? Ownership. Now we have submission. We have confession. Now we have submission. So here's our response. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? I think Jesus gave us a great example of that when he was in the wilderness for 40 days. What did Jesus Christ do? He quoted scripture. And you draw near to God. You submit to God in obedience when you pull in closer to him. Satan wants no part of that. He's not going to get near someone who is dishing truth right back in the face of his lies, quoting the word of God in their mind, in that battle for truth in their mind. And you're running towards God. You're drawing near to Him. The enemy doesn't want to get close to that. He knows he's already lost that fight. And this passage is very, and we know this, it's very serious about sin. Sin against the Holy God is a heavy thing. And if you want to be serious about sin, there's two things that you can do about it. What are they? Right here. Cleanse your hands and purify your heart. It's not just about your body and what you do with your hands, also be aware of how wicked and dark your heart can be. The core problem here is double-mindedness. It's not just about actions. It's about the motives and the desires of your heart. James is saying, pay attention to your desires, take them captive, confess them, and fight in this area of your mind. Think about how much you talk to. I know we talk to a lot of people. There's, there's a lot of people that talk to you. Some of us work with Chatty Patty, who's just nonstop in your ear, right? I dare say you probably talk to yourself more than even that person who annoys you. Because everything you're doing, you're either just reacting emotionally and just going with that, or you're going to stop and say, wait a minute, no. What do I need to do here? Are you, are you speaking truth to yourself? Or are you speaking what you're feeling in the moment? You are talking to yourself. What you are thinking is very important. Is it the meekness of true wisdom? If you pay attention to that, 
you're probably going to feel the need to confess a little bit more than you probably do right now. <laughs> That's the truth of where we're at. Now, verse 9 is about as countercultural as it gets. Uh, something tells me verse 9 has probably never been a theme verse of like, uh, like a woman's conference or, or pretty much anything. You know, we don't see this on the back of a Christian t-shirt. But look how James doubles down on this. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I told you sin is heavy. Sin against the holy God is not something to be lax about and to be dismissive of. This is a big deal. And I would say, I think really where this kind of rubs against us right now, one of the drugs of our culture, and Christians included, is levity. We love to just like laugh. And I have no problem with laughing. I, I, I love that. Um, I love to get around with friends and, and, and joke around. But a good thing can become the enemy of the best. And that's where a lot of us find ourselves. We don't want to think about anything serious. We want to just laugh it all up. 2020 has probably helped us a little bit not, not be so bad with the levity thing. There's a lot of like heavy things going on right now. I get that. Uh, shaking it a little bit. But you just say, hey, I want to be light and bubbly. I don't want anything to make me feel bad. I, I just want somebody to make me feel good. I want my movies to do that. I don't want to pay attention to what's going on in the world in the news because it's going to make me feel sad. I, I want this from church. I want them to make me feel good. You know? It's kind of true sometimes. You don't want to hear the pastor talking about sin all the time. <laughs> Our drug of choice is levity, and James is not having it. He says, mourn and weep and wail. Why does he say that? Well, he doesn't give us it directly. He usually never does. But you piece this together from everything else he has just said. It's because sin and pride and you elevating yourself over God is the antithesis of everything you need to have real joy and peace. Right? It, it doesn't mesh with humility. In John 8, we're told about a story of, of a woman who was caught in adultery. Do you remember this? She's dragged in, in the middle of the street, caught in the act. This is probably a very ugly scene. The, the men who caught her says, the law says this woman should be stoned to death. She's exposed. And what did Jesus say in that story? With tears and dirt all over her face, Jesus looked at all of those men and he said, let the one with no sin cast the first stone. And the Bible tells us from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped the stone and they walked away. Then he picks up her face and he can't miss what he says here. Her guilt is not in question. She is guilty. Visible for all the world to see in this shameful, one of the most shameful, despicable moments of her life, Jesus lifts her face, looks her in the eye, and he says, Has no one condemned you? Go and sin no more. Jesus did not hold that guilt. He forgave it. And he left it in the dust. We have to feel that way about our sin. It's in our tears, it's in our heartbrokenness of our sin, it's the forgiveness of our jealous God who gives more grace he will do that for us, and that will launch us into more joy, an orbit of joy. 
Do you think that woman got up and just drove her way after Jesus did that? No, of course not. She sprung up. She felt, she stood up with a strong belief and assurance that her past was in the past. Jesus is not condemning me. He's good with me. I don't care what anyone else thinks. They can get on board with him. Because when he forgives you, it's over. It's washed away, separated as far as the east is from the west. And this is what James has been talking about the entire letter. It's his grace penetrating our lives that brings about humility, which God exalts. Where can humility come up right now as we wrap this up? So we've seen all of these big concepts. What is the underlying motive that ties every one of these points together? Do you know what it is? Are you able to pick it up? What ties together the ownership, the confession, the, the submission? You have to read James carefully. You always do, because he's not a novice-level author. He likes to he likes to be advanced. <laughs> he always clues us in, though. The common thread behind all of these points is right under your nose. It's in verse ten. What does it What does it say? James four ten. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see this? It takes humility to own up to the sins of your own flesh. It takes humility to confess your worldly unfaithfulness to God. It takes humility to submit in obedience to his ways and not your own ways. Humility is the underlying motive. Humility, James starts talking about, he really talks about it all the way through, but he really starts nailing it in verse 6 all the way through verse 10. If there's humility, your quarrels won't last very long. And humility comes when you see yourself as an enemy of God who received the grace of God and became a child of God. We get that childlike humility with our Father. And we know that he has our back, that he is going to strengthen us, he is going to sustain us. I'm not going to be able to do this on my own and fight this fight against the world and the flesh and the devil on my own. It all comes, humility comes when we realize every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of life. Humility comes when you realize that God is jealous for you and that he is going to exalt you. Humility comes when you realize what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. You didn't save yourself. Jesus saved you. And people don't need more of you. They need more of Jesus through you. Will you stand up? We're going to respond today in singing the song that we usually do. And, and we love to respond. We, we have this down. We love to respond and apply the truth right back and sing it back to God. And I love doing that. But there's also, I think, another way that we can respond to it. For some of us, let's, let's sing. Some of us, maybe we need to mourn and weep a little bit. Maybe you need to pray about this. Maybe you have been running after the desires of your own flesh. You've been caving into that and listening to the lies that this temporary thing that's going to provide me satisfaction right now, it won't affect my relationship with my wife. It won't affect my relationship with my future spouse. This won't affect my relationship with my friends right now. I can, I can dive into this thing. 